This podcast is brought to you by Google for Games. It takes more than a collection of tools to help you bring your gaming vision to life. With cross-platform solutions that give you access to billions of potential players around the world, Google is your partner to create great games, connect with players, and scale your business. Visit g.co slash Google for Games or go to the link in the podcast description below. And if you ask me, Google for Games is the destination to learn more about game solutions and latest research and insights from Google's gaming teams to help you achieve your goals. If you're not driving or working out while listening to this podcast, I really suggest you fire up that browser and check out Google for Games. The hard part of selling your video game? Well, that's simply letting the community and players know it exists. That's particularly true if you're about to launch a new game and don't have an established brand yet. What's the solution? Well, it's creating your own dedicated online presence that lets you connect directly with players, gather signups for your email campaigns, and communicate things like updates about your game's development process or new features. You can build an online storefront, grow your community, run pre-orders and subscription programs, and generally bring in more long-term revenue by selling game keys, virtual goods, or bundles. Especially for indie developers, pre-orders are underutilized lifeline, but any size studio can benefit from them. That time block before the game is fully released, it's prime opportunity for building awareness and getting early stage pre-launch revenue, which can be critical for sustaining your project throughout the development cycle and helps you forecast your game's first year sales. Exola can help you accomplish this with Exola Game Sales. Want to know more about how to get started generating more revenue for your game? Visit exola.pro slash game sales or go to the link in the podcast description below. All right, welcome to Twig198. We've got big news, personally, as well as uh, big news stories to cover. Um, this is also a full packed house, right? We've got five of us here today. So everybody but Miska, um, which we'll get into the reasons for <laughs> in a little bit. Um, but yeah, uh, does anybody have any quick updates before we get into the real, the real shenanigans? I got nothing. Let's go, because we've got lots to cover. Okay, well, the first big right, wait, hold on. I like, that, I, I like how Eric gonna... says... No, I don't have anything, so no one has anything, yeah. and we should therefore move on to... What if I have something? I, you don't, you yeah. didn't ask. Eric just said, I don't have anything, I, so we're moving I, on. I've spent a lot of yeah, time on this podcast backdrop. That looks great, I'm Ethan. Our... Can, we, can we unpack this? It looks great. What do we have here? What are these pictures? Because the, are... no one cares about you your got shit. A, you got a, you got a <laughs> George Carlin uh, record. David uh, Bowie fame. I can't see... Oh my god, it goes off the rails like almost immediately. Steve Martin, this is my wall of inspiration. My wall of, I'm still working on it. I've got six more to add, but Yeah. So Steve Steve Martin and George Carlin influenced your daily life of Correct. game design. Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> these are these are my artistic okay. heroes. Oh my lord. <laughs> Heaven help us. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Laura, how are you doing? Uh, I'll put Justin Lin up, and then it'll fit in the opening section in the future. How about that? <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. 
um, okay, so let's get into the, 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 real, the real news. So um, first thing, I've got some sad news to share. Um, this will actually be my last twig. Um, I'm going to be uh, leaving the podcast, um, at least taking a break. I might come back, um, do some one-on-ones and um, sort of pure product um, roundtables and this type of thing, but I'm going to be leaving the podcast. The, the reason is because is I actually uh, left my job at WB. Um, I'm actually joining Bungie as a senior director of product. Hey, congrats. Um, and we'll be scaling product teams there. Yeah, thanks, man. Congrats, dude. <laughs> That's Eric clapping. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was expecting a slow clap from Eric. <laughs> oh, no. I, um, but I, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, mean, I, think, I think it's an amazing move. I'm going to be sad that we can't work together at Warner anymore. But I will say that I think what Bungie is doing, from what I've heard, is very, very cool. So I think uh, it's a good spot to be in. and You should get all the resources you could possibly need. And uh, as long as Sony doesn't fuck it up, you know, it's good. <laughs> Let's start on that. Let's start on that foot. Um, but yeah, I will be scaling up a lot of product teams there. Um, so I will be looking to hire. So if you are looking to, to kind of push into PC console, um, you're a strong product manager, um, definitely reach out because I'm going to be building up um, a team there. Um, also... Um, yeah, like I, I think um, it's it's going to be a pretty interesting role, but I think uh, working on this podcast, it's very difficult to get outside of the blast radius that is Eric Cress's comments. Get out of here. <laughs> so I wanted to leave on that. Uh, but I, I know the podcast is going to be on, on good terms. I don't think uh, you guys won't miss a step. Um, you've got Ethan and Laura now, um, so this will be good. Couldn't make it to 200. <laughs> yeah, Eric Eric Seifert's not even mentioned. Yeah, we, we got Laura Sorry, no, I, and Ethan. We're good. <laughs> no, I, no, I mean like... I, I know what you meant, Adam. No, it's okay. We okay. got we got okay. this. Okay. We got what this. gives, Don't guys? Huh? What, what's, 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 the, what's with the bad vibes? We got I, some bad vibes today going around. <laughs> I don't like it. It's because we're I don't sad. Like it one bit. I, 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 it's because we're sad. Because l- listen yeah. to the now the follow up story. Yes. Okay, so now the follow up story. There's a reason why Misk is not here. Uh, PlayStation has acquired, or PlayStation Studios has acquired a mobile game developer called Savage Game Studios, uh, which <laughs> I think we've all heard of this company. That is Miska's studio. So he has now been acquired by Sony. Uh, to help them build up uh, mobile games arm um, and take on Sony IP. Um, so this pretty much means that we're losing a second host this week. It's definitely a theme here, yeah. right? I mean, Sony's got a blog. <laughs> I, They've got a podcast. Why don't they acquire us? What's what's the deal? They're just picking off the team one by one. Uh, you know, the ironic, ironic truth is it's most likely partially due to the exposure of this podcast is the reason that all these things are happening. So... We're like a victim of our own success, I suppose, uh, for both Mishka and um, Adam. But very sad day indeed, man, because Adam, I do, you do provide a much, uh, um, let's say, a intellectual approach to this nonsense. Um, and then Mishka is our illustrious leader, right? He's basically put all this together. But going forward, I think we have um, myself... And uh, Ethan, that are really going to try to take charge of Twig and, and 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 the podcast in general, get some guests and do some shite, and then hopefully Laura will help and and, and Eric maybe. What gives? You know, what I gives, don't know. What Eric, gives, man? 
Are you going to help, Eric? I don't help know. With what? But it's, I'm going to uh, help. But I think I, we'll be taking responsibility. I will offload as many. Uh, I've already had like eight emails in the past day of people I have to interview. So this is too much. More, exactly. more than I signed up for. <laughs> And, I, and also, as a replacement to Mishka, although Mishka is never to be replaced, uh, I, I have a new mascot for the podcast that I must share in one moment. This is Mishka. You got a puppy? I got a puppy, you... and I'm calling him Mishka. No. No. That's weird. Is I'm that not it? calling him Mishka. <laughs> I, would, I, wouldn't be, I, would I do have be, a puppy. I would not be surprised if you did name him Mishka. You have a crush on Mishka. No. I do I, no, but this is the replacement for Mishka. So whenever we need anything said by from Mishka, we'll bring him on. Okay. All right. <laughs> Still going to evangelize for Finland. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> every, every time we need to shill for Finland, you know, we'll, we'll bring in uh, the dog. He needs a sweater. All right. Yeah. The Finnish right. flag sweater. All right. Let's get to let's get to our favorite part: the commenting on last okay, week's episode. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I listened to last week's podcast. Um, so I do have some feedback, uh, specifically on the rant about cosmetics, uh, just because I felt like you guys were off the rails there a little bit. Um, so let's start with the the big one. So uh, Sufer, you mentioned that Fortnite's revenue is likely not a majority from cosmetics. Uh, as far as I'm aware, Fortnite's revenue is 100% cosmetic. So I think specifically you honed in on the Battle Pass, right? Where, yes, they make a lot of revenue from the Battle Pass. Um, the Apple versus Epic trial actually gave yeah. you those numbers. I believe it was something like 20% came from the Battle no, Pass. No, on iOS. On um, iOS. On yeah, iOS, but that, yes. so that, so this Because I was looking um, into this yesterday because someone called me out on Twitter as well. And I couldn't find overall revenue breakdown statistics. But on iOS, it was like 20% was from the Battle Pass. But... Keep in mind, iOS was probably a secondary engagement device for Fortnite players, right? And yeah, three three yeah, percent, four percent. Yes, of and total iOS was some minuscule yeah. amount of revenue, which is why they were okay to completely walk away from it when they did Project Liberty, right? So, if I had to guess, and I mean this is a pure guess, and this is this is based more on knowledge of other battle royale games, it probably <laughs> is the majority of revenue coming from Battle Pass, right? Unless Fortnite is different, and it might be. And I could be totally wrong about this, right? But my guess would be that Battle Pass represents the majority of revenue. And I don't consider Battle Pass to be a cosmetic purchase. It's a regular uh, – it's almost like – it's in, in, in a lot of ways, it's a subscription, right? And, 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 and it's, it's, it's a regular purchase. that it's not, it's not purchased on a subscription cadence, but it's a regular purchase you make every season, right? If you're a, you know, if you're a big fan of the game, if you're a, a committed fan of the game. Right, and it includes cosmetics. And again, I'm less familiar with Fortnite here than I am with Call of Duty, for instance. But it also includes experience, which is actually really helpful in getting you uh, matched in the games that you want to get that you want to play in, and, and not the newbie games, right? Because that's how the matchmaking works in Call of Duty. Nope. Right. Again, I could be I, maybe in Call of Duty. No, but I know, not, but not I'm talking a, about Call of Duty now. Right. So, but yes, I don't know about Fortnite. I don't play Fortnite yeah. f- f- at all. Fortnite. Right. Is. So I could be wrong about that. But 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 nonetheless, I mean, if you yeah. look at what's in the battle pass, it's not all cosmetic items. It's it's cosmetics. Yeah, but everything everything is basically intermediaries to yeah. get to cosmetics. So I guess V-Bucks. that's my point. It's like from from my perspective when when I'm thinking about it as a game designer as a product manager, a lot of the stuff that's in the battle pass, like you're talking about experience points or virtual yep. currencies, all of those things are to get cosmetics because that's the only reward type that Fortnite really has to go after, right? So you look at the battle pass and you say, hey, that's not really a cosmetic purchase. I look at it as like it's just a second step. Between okay, getting fair enough. Cosmetics. I mean, but I, I also think we were speaking more in the abstract and not specific to Fortnite. And I, I think I, I did misspeak. I know I misspoke, 
right? So, you know, here we go. Like, uh, mea culpa. But, uh, but, but, okay. but yeah, I think yeah. it, when I'm, we were talking more about in the abstract uh, what a battle pass is and whether all that revenue is, gen- like, in general for battle passes, is that cosmetic? Is that, is that purely cosmetic purchases or the IAPs? We were talking about, like, the long tail of the LTV, right? And how to, how to build a game that's actually, like, marketable, right? And that was my point. It's like, well, if you have that regular subscription type, subscription type, subscription-like cadence of purchases, that's how you get to the long-term LTV. And, and I guess in some cases, yes, that could just be only cosmetic Wait. devices, right? But in some cases, it's not. In some cases, it's actually related to gameplay. And that's how you get the long tail of the LTV that supports spending money on marketing, right? That was my point. Okay, wait. All right. So, so, so the, uh, the other other part of this was oh, go ahead, go ahead. Wait, wait. Yes, you can go. Okay, so I I'm actually completely on the opposite side of this argument. Right, my understanding is that those numbers from iOS are actually accurate, where it's only like twenty percent of the spend is the is the battle passes because the depth of spend is created by adding uh, elements or, 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 or um, cosmetics that are really compelling for people to purchase. For 20, 40 bucks at a time, right? So the spend depth is what increases the, gets the higher LTVs, right? In terms of longevity, maybe battle passes are important, you know, kind of subscription type revenue to keep engagement high. But in terms of like raising the LTV, you have to have compelling, um, you know, uh, a la carte type options in, in, for purchase. Yeah, it, and so, yeah, so to be clear, from, from my this research is, of this is sorry, my, this is not me. I talked to the people at Epic about this once this data yeah. came out, and they were basically confirmed that that is for both for the whole platform. Yep. So from from my research as well on Fortnite, the majority of the revenue doesn't come from Battle Pass, even on PC console. Um, the cadence that they're launching new co- cosmetics into that direct purchase shop is really unmatched in at least Western developers, right? Um, they were at a cadence of, of launching something like six skins a week, and these skins are twenty bucks each, and well worth that value given the amount of feature sets. So, like, they actually get a tremendous amount of spend depth from their direct purchase cosmetic shop, but they do that by having really high quality skins. So, like, you can become a banana, like very, very highly differentiated skins with VFX and sound effects and all that kind of stuff, on top of a very high cadence of those things driving up that spend up. So that was the part where I was like, well, like that's that's the model for cosmetics is you become this content treadmill for cosmetics that you have to be able to drive that spend depth. And a lot of people look at the battle pass thinking that it is the spend depth system when it absolutely All right. is not. It, that is the uh, here's what I'll say. I, I don't know enough about Fortnite to speak uh, uh, in a compelling, you know, in a convincing, compelling way, right? I don't know anything about Fortnite. I should shut up. I don't know. I don't know anything about Fortnite. I know zero about Fortnite. I should shut up. But the point I was making when we're talking about anytime you, anytime you bring up Fortnite, you have to caveat that with also it's a social phenomenon that took the world by storm, right? So yes, when you're talking about the biggest game that exists in the world, there's probably things that apply to that that don't apply to you, eight-person mobile gaming startup deciding what game to build. And my point was, and, we're, and what we were talking about was, if, if I'm a mobile game developer and I'm starting out and I'm de- trying to decide what game to build... How am I going to build a monetization engine? And if you look at the more successful mobile games out there, they have they're live ops driven, right? A lot of that is 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 rooted in like a competitive, uh, a regular weekly cycle, and the purchases are related to that. So maybe those could be 
uh, cosmetic, but probably not. Like if you're, again, if you're trying to break through in that market and not trying to compete with Fortnite as the next biggest game in the world, which good luck, um, but that's a totally different enterprise, right? So that was kind of my, my generalized point here was more mobile gaming market. How do you build an economy that supports UA? Yes, Fortnite is special. Right, granted, Fortnite is special. It's a huge game. It's the biggest game in the world. It's got a lot of brand recognition. People know it. People love it. People play it. And they'll, they could probably monetize by selling you Polaroid pictures of your mom. But other games can't. And you shouldn't look at Fortnite as the <laughs> uh, you know as 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 the sort of guiding light for how to design your game. Yep, completely agree. So I, I don't want to take away from your main points there, um, but I. Do you want to call out some things that are unintuitive about the cosmetics model? Because you did go farther and you really said, like, look, cosmetics is not uh, a model that most developers can take on. Like, there are smaller developers, especially on PC console, that have been successful with it, right? Like Path of Exile, which is really what the D4 live plan probably takes a lot of yeah. notes from, um, is a smaller developer, right? Like a small little group of guys from New Zealand that, that maintain this game. It's basically cosmetics only. They only have, like, a few... Um, like inventory help um, management types of IAPs, but that game is on track to becoming a billion-dollar live service, right? Like, like Path of Exile is a cosmetic-only game, yet is able to do this despite having a relatively small team. And I think it's partially some of the stuff that's unintuitive about cosmetics. Like, you think about League of Legends, Rainbow Six Siege, and they sell characters, right? They sell classes. And intuitively, you'd assume that, you know, those characters and classes probably make up the majority of revenue because they actually have gameplay impact. And they do drive quite a bit of adoption. Um, but from my colleagues, colleagues that work on those types of games, very quickly, cosmetics overtook those things as the dominant form of revenue just because cosmetics can be an infinite well of spend depth because you, you can keep producing cosmetics and cosmetics actually don't run into a ton of problems of, of reaching... Um, a, a cap of design so like from building collectible rpgs on mobile you can get into this space where if you don't have things like a damage model that has enough design space to create a bunch of different heroes right you can get into a space where the new heroes you're launching are just not as valuable as the previous ones cosmetics does not suffer from the same things as this especially if you're doing things like theming or dropping new characters alongside to kind of increase the, the amount of loadout slots that you're actually impacting with cosmetics so like Dota, Dota, and I think um, CS:GO, League of Legends, all really, really point to the the depth of the well that can come from cosmetics. So while I don't want to um, hurt your point, Eric, I think it's absolutely true, especially for mobile. Um, but the games that do lean into cosmetics, right? There are advantages to that model, and there are types of games that that cosmetics do. Yeah, no, sense. fair point. But when you say cosmetics, are you talking about something that is literally purely cosmetic? Are you talking about something that actually gives you... Yes. Uh, like a character is not purely cosmetic, yeah. right? Like they yeah. have different attributes that... Yeah. yeah he's, he's no, no, that's what I said. Like those character things, those character things, in the beginning, drive quite a bit of revenue mm -hmm. and drive a bit of adoption. That actually drops significantly. And then cosmetics end up taking 80%, 80 plus of the revenue from any of those games because it's so much easier right. to produce mountains of content of cosmetics than it is to be producing characters like a, something like an apex legends they've announced things like it takes them 18 right. months to produce a character right they 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 can't produce more than yeah. four well to, but to your point about the, the 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 ease of production you know that the other the other thing there that's nice about cosmetics is that there is no impact on gameplay right so there's no like balancing consideration right it's just a it, if it's purely cosmetic exactly. yeah. that you don't have to even think 
about like the design of the economy or like uh, you know power dynamics between weapons or whatever or characters. It's just you know some pixels, right? And that's that's really nice. So I guess if you that's exactly. good work if you can yeah. get it, right? If you if you can make that work, if if you can get to a Fortnite status where you know I can sell you Polaroids of ice cream and, and puppies and sunsets. Uh, and make you know whatever five billion dollars in profit in 2020, which is what they did, or something like that. Um, then that's great. It's nice work if you can get it. All right, let's move on. Yeah. We got lots to go. Um, I did want to talk about Diablo as well. Um, sorry for there's just so much news this week. But um, for Diablo's live plan, Ethan, you covered that, and I think you also had that on your blog, Famous Aspect. Um, and I thought it was good. I just wanted to call out like Diablo three was an amazing game, but that seasonal model that they threw on top that they're building on for D four is built on a band-aid or a patch like it was a low-cost way to kind of give endgame players like something to do by basically resetting them and chasing after cosmetics with a few gear set changes but it's really only relevant to players that appreciated resetting their characters all the way from scratch appreciated the nuance of replaying the entire game just to reach a specific build but this in my eyes is still a niche of a niche um I feel like actually with Diablo 3, there are, since Diablo 3, there's other live models that existed that retained a better and larger player base. Um, and especially if they're going towards cosmetics, this becomes relevant. They need the most players in that endgame that, uh, that would actually want to purchase cosmetics, right? So more like MMOs and more like mobile CCR RPGs that can do this, but without forcing that reset. Like I actually try to put my mind in the... I try to think like Eric Cress in this, right? Like when, when Division 2 comes out or the next expansion from World of Warcraft, right? Like what's going to drive a player like Eric Cress to come back? And uh, you can speak for yourself, Eric, but I'm pretty sure you're motivated by gear score caps. And like you're, you're not going to reset your entire progress down to square one, but you're, you want a new chase to get a whole bunch of gear pieces, some interesting story missions to go after. And that's typically the more mass market of these kind of looter style games um so what i was excited about d4's live plan was that they were talking about you know story drops new gear sets new activities and building up plans for uh regular expansions like i in my eyes diablo 3 with yearly expansions at the same scope of reaper of soul of, of souls would have Co- been a successful live service quarterly right? expansion and, and actually would what they're talking about the quarterly expansion would be incredible i don't think they're going to reset so Right, like a, a yearly beat of pulling back all those players because they reach thirty million units sold. Right, like they they're they're a big fucking game, um, but but building up those types of expansions is totally player friendly. All those players will happily purchase those types of things, and the cosmetic stuff can be icing on top. Um, but that has to be more about building up um, uh, engagement between those beats. And I don't think a fully resetting way of doing it is the right way to approach it. So I would actually point to, to Cress, like, would you play Diablo 4 if it asks you to reset your class every season? No. Would you keep coming it, back? No. It, it well, that's not the way I play those games at all. It, it doesn't so, like, force you to, though. It optionally allows you to if you want to engage in the season. You can keep playing with your existing character forever. Yeah, yeah but then why? But, yeah. And then, then how, much of their, how much of their investment should go into giving that seasonal reset yeah. content versus making those players who are playing in the internal realm. I mean, I, I, I think, fun, right? I, I think the seasonal reset is clever. I think that, um, the start of progression is the most fun and exciting and engaging part of it. And the grind when levels get spaced out more and more, and you're basically like, I need to play for another four days so I can move this thing by two points again. Like, 
I, I actually think players want an excuse uh, to redo the same thing over and over again, and the seasonal reset actually makes it very fresh. I, yeah, I'm not going to disagree 100%, but I, I, I think your note said the same thing, is that Diablo didn't do this because that was the design that they wanted. They, they did it because they had no other way of, of moving forward, right? I mean, they either didn't have the resources or, or the will to actually create content on a, on a regular basis to supplement this so they came up with these season ideas and just went with it right and i I actually i would love to hear the blizzard story behind the story behind the story because it i agree with adam this is not a good design it never was it was for the core diablo fan and and i don't think it maintains uh audiences and and compels people to engage as much as the content strategy that adam is suggesting you know every six months you have a small expansion every year you have a big expansion Keep the player fan, you know, power fantasy going, engaging in better content, axing different things like the same, you know, like an MMO style or you know, you know, looter shooter style. So anyway, but you know, we'll see what they do with Diablo Four. But I think I, I am almost certain that Diablo Four will not be Diablo Three, right? In terms of that design, right? You should you should read the paper. Oh, really? They just launched that paper. I mean, they're yeah, they're, that's, they're that's planning why, on replicating the that's same. That's why thing. I mentioned this. They, oh, they I'm sorry. I, I missed plan. that. I, I think I think they likely will do some sort of dual track uh, where there there is a seasonal option that people can reset, and then they're going to try to I see, do I the see. eternal realm for those things. Which okay. Uh, but sorry, Laura, you want to talk about Gamescom? Yeah, I was going to do a quick update on Gamescom. So Mishka, uh, Kross, and I were there last week. I'm actually in Berlin now. Um, it took place in Cologne, Germany. There was just there was a blip in the news about the numbers in attendance, so I got a bit curious. And about 265 uh, people were in, uh, sorry, 265,000 people were in attendance, not 100. Um, and I looked, I was like, is that bigger or smaller than 2019? And it's actually almost 100,000 people smaller. So um hasn't I'd say conferences haven't quite recovered yet um despite the numbers still I went in thinking there was going to be so much to talk about in free to play there was there's was not much of a free to play mobile scene there lots of indie and smaller studios and a very large consumer portion with lots of people in costume very excited fans I think major developers the news was before before last week but major developers weren't in attendance this year so Sony who usually has a more significant exhibit, was not there. Neither was Nintendo, Activision Blizzard, or Take-Two. Um, there were some interesting trailers. I think without those big players, they're probably... I imagine that if they had been there, the trailers would have probably been a little bit little bit more pizzazzy. Um, but I think the, the ones that I thought looked notable and interesting, and again, I'm coming from a casual perspective, so please jump in here if I pick the wrong ones. There was Everywhere Game was coming out. It looks like it's user content driven game and then there's a dune awakening game lords of the fallen 2 moving out 2 by team 17 i included that because i love overcooked and they're coming out with a sequel to moving out hogwarts legacy and then new tales from the borderlands sonic frontier Sonic Frontiers also had a trailer, which looks good. And then I think this is a little bit more niche, but every all of my friends at least are talking about the Return to Monkey Island game that's going to be coming out. Everyone's so excited. I tried to play the original one um, maybe a couple of years ago. And please, please don't throw stones at me, but I don't think it aged very well. It was very hard to play that game now with all of the kind of everything, all the games and how they look and how they feel. It felt very old. So I'm looking forward to seeing kind of the uh, the remastered version. And then a couple more. The Careful, Laura. One, Dude, yeah? 
Careful, Lori. You're gonna get just totally sniped on this one, right? This is like I've I've never been a fan of point and click. I I don't like playing them. I always go like, why is why do I need this cheese and to put this cheese in the door? Like, why is that the solution? I feel like every point and click adventure game is that. So I love point and click adventure games. I think it's just some of them age better than others. So I'm very excited to play this one when it's going to be. It's going to feel newer. That, that's all. I'm just, I'm just shallow. That's all I can say. Eric, I um, think this new authority has gone to your head. You're telling everybody to move on, cutting everybody off. <laughs> you're, uh, you're becoming a slave oh, driver. Yeah, here. right, right. No, but we have like <laughs> so much to get to. All right, moving on. Yeah, we're, we're still, we're still in the updates. Uh, one other quick one: Valorant uh, episode five is now adding a new map, and it's going to be an underwater map just for you, Super. <laughs> so get excited. We got an underwater level coming to Valorant. I won't be playing it. I won't be playing. Um, it. <laughs> uh, Facebook Gaming has announced that its app is shutting down on October 28th so the change will uh, affect the iOS and Android versions and this is not the web at the time although reading between the lines it sounds like a lot of the functionality is basically getting merged into the wider app so this likely means that Facebook Gaming is just going to be going on maintenance mode or, or reducing in scope um, this is surprising since I think we've covered in the past Facebook Gaming uh, actually took over Mixer from Microsoft and actually has been doing well in terms of share of voice against incumbents of Twitch and YouTube. Um, the state of the stream actually reported that Facebook Gaming had about 425 million hours watched against Twitch's 1.7 billion, so roughly about 25% of the size. Uh, I, but still, Meta is in a spot that they I, need to make less speculative I, bets. I think they've rolled all the Facebook Gaming functionality into Facebook Blue, the, the primary Facebook app. So I think it's not yeah, about exactly. yeah. turning down their bet on streaming because I see a lot of streaming content in, in my feed. It's about realizing that they get the most reach when it's in the primary app and not its own standalone thing. I think they're also yeah. they're taking a different yep. path here. Like, did you did you all see what they did with the uh, Pac-Man uh, thing? Uh, it's like a it's like a, a, a HTML5 kind of multiplayer Pac-Man experience they also did that live uh kind of walking dead choose your own adventure type game or it's like the, the the audience can choose what happens in the game um anyway i think i think they're going for yeah but to your point ethan like they've facebook's actually contender in the in the in the game streaming space now um but i think they're, they're going more for that because you can't you can't have a standalone app install product right because that's against app store guidelines and what they're moving more into are like these sort of like collective adventure type streamed experiences it is a game but it feels more like a video interaction um because that's that's all they can really get away with given the apple you know guidelines around app stores within the app store yep that makes sense uh next update google play games uh is now available for download in australia hong kong korea taiwan and thailand this is google's pc launcher which allows teams to deploy their mobile games onto PC um, and is likely looking at the trend of developers moving their mobile games onto PC and actually doing fairly well. So we've heard stories of things like Raid and Star Trek Fleet Command doing pretty well. Um, overall, personally, I'm bullish on existing scaled mobile free-to-play games moving to PC, if only to take advantage of using their own payment provider, uh, i.e. lower IAP fees, and allowing your top end of players to play wherever they are. As a growth vehicle, I think it's far tougher. Um, I think PC console growth is not necessarily easier than mobile. Now, if you do it under Google's roof, I'm not sure 
like are you now then just going right back to paying a 30 percent cut for this um so i don't know i i doubt that this store can ever reach the scale of something like a steam but maybe google is just making this conversion to pc client so simple that it's a no-brainer that people are okay with taking that 30 percent cut um i don't have a ton of data on this but uh, I would love to be corrected about what what the business case is here for a developer. Yeah, I I imagine it's just um, a better BlueStacks alternative. That's my best guess, right? Like instead of let instead of having your players do a janky emulation, just let them play it directly, right? Because when you play on BlueStacks, I think you still have to pay through Google. Yeah, so because it's still technically an Android app. But. So publishers are going to get more control. Is that what you're suggesting? No, I, I, less. A, a, a less buggy experience, right? We know that people okay. play Android games on PC using emulator, and but it's not seamless. Um, it can gotcha. often be buggy or crashy. So I think this could be a case for hey, your people want to play, your players want to play on PC anyways. So let them um, play in the official app and have a smoother experience that runs your game without crashing. It's my guess. Fun yeah. fact, yeah. if you went to a mobile gaming conference uh, between the years of like 2016 and COVID, uh, there was better than even odds that the Wi-Fi password was BlueStacks. <laughs> <laughs> they sponsored like every mobile gaming conference and then they sponsored the Wi-Fi password. Uh, <laughs> so that was always the first guess if you wanted to get on the Wi-Fi. Interesting. Um, I do want to make one more call out here. Uh, Xtero has raised $40 million for a high-end mobile Web3 games. Um, this is uh, alongside a friend of the podcast, Jeremy Horn, who's XGM City, Plus VP, has now spun out and formed uh, his own company focusing on cross-platform Web3 games. Um, so it looks like this is somewhat of a, a sister or a spun out from FunPlus, but the investors did include FunPlus, FTX, Animoca, and Makers. Uh, Sufert, you had some details? Uh, I'm an advisor, so happy for the team. Have, thanks, thanks, Jeremy, for uh, for inviting me along for the ride, and look forward to seeing what, what you uh, what you come up with. Look, guys, I'm, I'm going to let this slide because this is Adam's last podcast, but normally you tell me to put the crypto shit at the end. So, I mean, congrats to Jeremy. And I actually, I, I think what, he's, what, what they're planning on doing at Exterior is really interesting and has a great chance for success, but... You know, you got to wait till Crypto Corner next time to talk crypto news. <laughs> I, I think we can make it. We can carve out a special case uh, for Jeremy. No, He's a good guy. To be, guy. No, to be clear, we're putting Ethan at the end, oh, not crypto okay. stuff necessarily. So anybody can bring up crypto stuff anytime, but Just you have me. to stay at the end. Okay. Listen, to this, the back. listen to this despot here. The, you, you, the little bit of power has gone to your head very quickly. <laughs> um. All right. I, I wanted to give my two cents on this app loving Unity fiasco. They're just total drama that's going on. And I'm really missing. Sorry, I missed this soap opera last week or last couple of weeks. Um, I know it's been covered, but I'll do it as quickly as possible. But what's crazy about that deal, uh, you know, basically app loving doing a hostile against Unity to block kind of the deal with Iron Source is that they're using stock. Like, you do not use stock for a hostile deal. Like, that is just, like, ridiculous. And it's not like the KKR guys don't know this, right? I mean, they're, like, experts. Like, they're far more of experts on this than I am. So a lot of people were speculating that this wasn't the end of it. Like, there must be more to it because this doesn't make any sense for how sophisticated these these KKR guys are. But um, but anyway, 
maybe partially because no one's going to loan money for a business like Unity, which loses money hand over fist. So it's like not like the best opportunity for, uh, you know, debt financing for a deal like this. But um, but the question is, what is AppLovin thinking? What is like the game theory here on this giving up 49 percent of their company so that JR can run it, uh, the combined company? Uh, I don't know how he thought that was going to work. And I, and, I, and and I just want to be clear, I'm pretty sure what was going on behind the scenes of why JR didn't want anything to do with this is because fundamentally people just don't like AppLovin, right? They don't like the company from what they've done in the past, right? And so they have a really bad reputation in this industry. And, you know, they've been very aggressive in the market. They have been accused and I think very obviously have stolen products from their customers. Um, the acquisition of Adjust was not well received by the majority of the industry as, as worries about getting access to the data was, was a big concern for them. Um, these guys, KKR guys are freaking gangster, dude. And they did a lot of crazy thing and their reputation has been damaged because of that. Um, and if you talk to most people in the industry, they'll kind of, you know, acknowledge that. So at the end of the day, this is not a cultural fit and what likely happened. And I have no information on this, but most likely they made a bid for iron source and iron source is like, fuck, no, we're not going to you guys. And then unity came and, and basically acquired iron source. Right. Um, so I, I guess this is one of those things where you have to uh, appreciate the fact that your brand matters, right? So when I was doing brand work at EA, we worked a lot about like figuring out what brand meant. And at the time, EA's brand was shit. And a lot of times when you do gangster and these great, you know, strategic moves for the company as AppLovin has done over the years. Uh, oh, by the way, and the other acquisition, obviously, was Mopub, which caused some issues for Unity specifically, I've been told. Um, but anyway, when you do these type of gangster moves, like you're going to, this is, this is when it manifests itself. Like when you actually want to do a transaction and try to, to combine or do broader deals with bigger companies, like reputation matters. And I think that's probably the biggest, um, hindrance for, for AppLovin to do what it wants to do right now. Um, and, and this, this corresponds to every industry, but I'll just leave it at that. I just want to make that point. Um. All right. Any anyone comments on that? Just no that the Iron Source has set the shareholder vote on the Unity deal for October third. So that's moving forward. Oh, and the last point I will make. I was just thinking about this. Is that strategically this makes total sense? Like, I mean, obviously, AppLovin acquiring Unity is a great idea. Like on on a strategy level, it just never was likely going to happen uh, for a variety of reasons, which includes the. Uh, perception of the company. All right. The second thing I need to comment on, because uh, uh, this is like, made me a little bit sick to my stomach. Uh, uh, as a fan of Lord of the Rings, the fact that Embracer now has the rights to Lord of the Rings is fucking horrific, you know, in a lot of ways. And and I may be wrong on this, right? I, 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 I know, I see what Adam, Adam's going to say, and I'm going to have to agree with what he's saying, but let me just quickly, why this is a terrible, terrible Terrible idea, right? First of all, acquiring a license like this uh, requires, um, sorry, the, require, the value of a license is built on the frequency and cadence of content that's being delivered against that license, right? And so if you have something that you don't produce content for, the license becomes less and less valuable. That's why something like Star Wars, uh, Marvel, uh, DC, all these things have cadence of content, which makes it relevant 
to the zeitgeist around, you know, the consumer, right? Generally speaking, right? And so the reason that Lord of the Rings is not that valuable of a license is because the cadence of content is shit, right? Like we haven't seen a movie for like decades, right? You know, the TV series is coming out. I kind of forgot about that. I'll be honest when I wrote this, but anyway, it's just, it's not a valuable license, right? Um, and, and then you look at someone like Embracer owning this license in order to create that kind of cadence, it costs hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Movies, television, games, right? Embracer barely knows how to make a game, much less make a movies and television. So I don't know how they're going to execute against a license like that's this big and frankly, this good, right? I wish, anyway, I wish someone else had it, right? But the other thing is that, don't you think this license has been shopped around before? Of course it has. I looked at this shit at EA like 20 fucking years ago, right? And I looked at it at... at, 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 at um, Sorry, we, we, we licensed this at Warner. We licensed this at, at Kabam. Like this license has been around. Like the value, the rumored value of this thing, they spent like $450 million or $500 million for this. It doesn't make any sense, right? It's the book license. It's, again, requires tons of content to be developed. So I, I don't understand how they're going to do this or how they're expecting to do this. Um and anyway, and the cost of building anything like meaningful out of this license would be hundreds of billions of dollars, right? They don't have the budget for this. And Embracer doesn't have the teams that could build this stuff. Um, now, again, I, I think Adam makes some really good points in a minute. But like, um, it's just, I, I just don't think they can execute against this license. And it's a little bit sad because I actually personally love the Lord of the Rings license and would rather in some ways see it ad hoc and, and build something great then probably something they're likely going to absolutely destroy. Um, but uh, Adam, what do you think? Uh, yeah, so <clears throat> in your original analysis, I just wanted to call it the Amazon TV show. Um, like there is going to be content coming out. The Amazon TV show is starting, I think, now. Um, yeah, it's, who it's, knows what the quality will be? But they're going to be spending against it like it's going to be the like new It's like $25 million dollar so budget per episode, <clears throat> something crazy like that. Yeah, so... Whoa, whoa. So I think there's like wait, a, wait, say that again. Non- Twenty five million spending something crazy like twenty five million dollars per episode. That can't be. That's insane. Yeah, that can't crazy. be right. It's it's Game of Thrones season eight level spend on this uh, show. <laughs> well, that's my okay. point. Well, All right. there is a there's a non zero chance that the TV show spikes up in popularity, um, but the and the IP becomes well, more relevant. But the the weird thing is is like this is now Amazon who's now recently canceled an MMO, right? Like they had, Amazon had the opportunity to build a lasting live service around their own TV show and they decided to stop the production of it given the costs around this IP. And it's very weird now that like Embracer picks up the baton here to build out IP for it. Yeah, I don't know. It's difficult to say. Go ahead, Sifri. These are mind-bending numbers. Amazon Studios is making history with its upcoming Lord of the Rings television series, the first season of which will be the most expensive season of television ever produced with its massive $465 million budget. That's more than the IP cost. The production cost is more than the IP was purchased for. And Amazon has not yet revealed the episode count, uh, blah, 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 although it's confirmed there will be at least six episodes. Now, it's it's probably going to be like 12 or, or 15, but that's nuts. They, they're, paying, they're paying more to produce a series than the IP was purchased for. That's wild. That's a- keep in mind, this IP is also very complicated, right? Like, there's cutouts here of this TV series. Crest, you know, like, does Embracer actually have the rights to 
build movies from Mo- this? Or movies, is this actually no, movies, the books t- and not games books. license? It's movies, TV, games, board games. And I think board games right, is but actually so they can do, part but, of it. Sh- but they can't do the same TV series that Amazon has. No, no. But like, there, there's... No, they have they they have the light the board they have the book license, not the movie license. I think New Line has the movie license, so you can't use any of the likeness and things from the movies, but you can use any of the lore and the characters from from the books. And 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 so the, so I just want to be clear because I know people are screaming right now on on listening to this is that I am not saying that Lord of the Rings is not a great license to do what they are suggesting they want to do they want to make an aragorn series a legolas series a, you know the you know the the little people series whatever the fuck they want to do like there's tons the the, there's tons of shit to do with this thing right i i'm not suggesting that <laughs> the fact is that there's no epic way that embracer can actually execute against yeah. this in any meaningful way so, right there's no yeah. way they are going to be able to spend 25 million a fucking episode to build a a, a decent and we don't even know if it's a decent, but let's assume it's a decent series. Like, there's just no way they can afford that's not, that. that. That's not connected to anything. They can't connect it to the movies. They can't connect it to this TV show. It's going to be its own thing. It's going to be connected to the books. It's going to have its right. own actors, right. its own things. Right. Right. right? So they're going to have to build really like their own little niche of this IP. So I, um, I, I, I actually, I saw Lars at the show and I really wanted to go up to him and just be a dick, but I, I, I didn't because... But instead, you chose to stab him the, in the back. But, but, I, but it, He had his people with him. to just but, games... What? But if we just go back to games, right? Like if we if we say like, okay, Embracer's going to take the Lord of the Rings IP. They probably paid too much for it, but they're going to take that IP and build games with it, right? Right now in the war chest for Embracer, what do they have? Like Hellboy, Tomb Raider, Legacy of Kane, right. DSX, right? So specifically with Crystal Dynamics and Eidos Montreal, right? Who they're going to have to fund a $100 million plus dev game anyways, would you rather them be building a Lord of the Rings game, or would you rather them be building a Hellboy or a Tomb Raider? I, I can't even believe you're making this freaking argument, right? First of all, the reason that the Eidos guys and the and 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 uh, Crystal Dynamics exist is because of Tomb Raider and Deus Ex, right? They, they, that's their baby. You think you're you think you're going to throw them on a Lord of the Rings and they're going to be happy about that, right? No, like that's like but creative. Would they happy about the? Yeah, you know, would they be happy about the Guardians of the Galaxy game, right? No, probably not, yeah, right? But they were probably forced to yeah. do it. I, I, that's probably part of the reason the relationship is all damaged, right? With Square Enix, you know, like I don't think yeah. I don't think you get people the creative geniuses to stick around if they're being forced to do, you know, a, a, a fucking dwarf game, you know. Like I mean, I, I I'm just saying, <laughs> like I don't think that's a recipe for success. And and again, the, again, I am saying. I just want to be clear. I love Lord of the Rings. I've read the series like three times. I'm a super nerd, but I just don't think that Embracer is the right company to manage this thing, and it's gonna it's gonna turn into an absolute disaster, right? In my opinion. So, um, yeah, we shall see. All right, I'm done with this one. I think we should move on because yeah. I think I'm probably gonna get. I think just to maybe to uh, help make Eric's point that. Um, if you think about EA's exclusive 10-year license on Star Wars, they did on mainline two Battlefront games and a, a VR a Star Wars Squadrons game. If it hadn't been for Galaxy of Heroes being a massive blockbuster free-to-play mobile game, I don't think we would have looked at that 10-year EA license exclusivity and said that was a great play by EA. And it was because EA, despite many massive investments, did not pull off many products with one of the best game licenses in the world, right? 
So right. and and oh, they oh, did do Jedi and, Knight. Okay, Don't forget so, that. But the, okay. but yeah, but the, but the, but they were also supported by constant uh, uh, threads of movies coming in to help support the Star Wars license. Right? It wasn't like they were standing alone and doing it on their own. Right? right? They have tons of people doing yeah. it. So yeah, it's anyway. hard hard yeah, to make all curiosity. the games. Out of curiosity, Kraus, if it's not the Embracer group, like which group would you be like? I'm so excited they bought this Lord of the Rings IP. Nobody, <laughs> nobody, <laughs> absolutely nobody. Besides maybe Disney, but even then, to make games, I'm sure Disney's looked at games. this a gajillion times. Like you know, like it's not it's not a valuable license from this perspective. It's the cost of get, developing anything in this in this world is too expensive. You know, I mean, it's, to do it right. Uh, the bar has been set too high. In some ways, the movies actually did a disservice to the license, right? Because the movies were so fucking epic yeah. and amazing. Yeah. Like, replicating that kind of fidelity and that kind of um, uh, quality is almost impossible, right? right? Without spending... It only costs $425. For, no, for a single episode. Right. Well, exactly. no, because, but the movies, the movies were like 260 to make. That's it. So I think, like, Chris, your point, like, my sense is, like, an IP... The value is either you coast off of it or you re-energize it, reinvigorate it. And if you're coasting off it, well, then it has to have a very recent cultural touch point. And if you're reinvigorating it, you got to have a lot of money, no matter what it is. I mean, with Lord of the Rings, yeah, they set a bar and they set expectations around, like, the visual fidelity and stuff. And, yeah, of course, it's going to be Amazon Studios' price point to reinvigorate that. But if you're going to coast off of it, it's got to have a very, very recent cultural touch point. Otherwise, you're never going to get anything out of it. I mean, part of me just Licenses wants to buy it myself and then make a really awesome game to prove you wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's talk uh, Zynga. All right. All right. Zynga. So casual games. So a couple days ago, an article was released about Zynga looking at, um, looking at where they were this time 10 years ago. And just as a reminder, 2012 was a, a critical year in free-to-play gaming as it kind of marked the start of the pivot from Facebook games to mobile games. So those that moved saw super great success looking at King, and those that didn't move or, or didn't move fast enough or in the right way, they did struggle a bit more. And I think in, in this article that Zynga is implied to be in that category. Um, the article starts with Zynga's second financial uh, report since its IPO. It fell short of expectations and then kind of goes into a domino effect. So there was a company sell-off. An investor filed a class action suit accusing Zynga executives of insider trading saying they knew that the stock was going to take a hit. A number of execs for, uh, at the time, sold off stock before the earnings report in April. Um, and then the shortly after, the COO, John Shapiro, was demoted and then resigned shortly after. He had, he had, before he came to Zynga, he had quite a bit of success at EA. So it was implied, and I, I'm just, I'm not saying it, it is or is not, but it was implied in the article that it was unlikely due to performance. That led to kind of a, a leadership and executive exodus from August to December of that same year. And then it kind of goes into the the public dog pile onto Zynga at the time. Comments like from other execs of other companies taking a bit of pleasure in the time of uncertainty for Zynga. It's kind of like when Crest gets on a on a rant about some other company. It was a lot of that and a lot, a lot of kind of hate for Zynga at that time. Uh, EA then sued Zynga for copywriting the for copying the Sim Social because of the Ville game that launched in the June 2012 of that year. They settled, and then the CEO changes in respective and there and basically implies that all the CEO uh, changes led to different stock led to the stock price jumping and falling. 
So with Pincus, it dropped. With Matrick, who followed him, it jumps. Pincus, then after uh, Matrick jumps, and then Hank Jabot, it jumps again. A few thoughts, and I, I just wanted to – I picked this one because – um, what I thought the main takeaway from this article was that kind of the the, the John Shapiro demotion resignation was kind of the trigger that led to the exodus, which then led to the instability that followed for the next three years for the company until until Frank joined. Um, I think I think the article could have called out a little bit more like changes in leadership, no matter the company, are tough to weather in the best of circumstances, and an entire leadership change in a short period of time can rock any company. And this kind of this this article had a tone. It was kind of adding to the dog pile that it called out itself. So um, I felt that it was a it was a little un, slightly unbalanced. Um, and the one thing that I felt that would have been better to mention is that despite this, in 2012, I ended up going like during lockdown. I had a lot of time, and I went through every um, earnings statement and. <laughs> They released 19 games in 2012, Zynga did. And that's that's not easy to do. I mean, companies struggle with that now. And of the 19 games, 50-50 um, were web and mobile. So it's not like they completely missed the boat. They didn't ignore mobile, but they didn't lean into casual games in mobile, which is kind of, which I think was, that was one of the secret sauces of the time. Um, the following years, 2013, 2014, the releases were much lighter. They only had four games per year. And that was probably from a bit of the instability of, of 2012. Um, but the, if I could go, the only thing I wish I could change is that uh, I would change the title. I don't think everyone hates Zynga. I think it's actually a fascinating company with a, with a very complex history. And I wish it had been a little bit tight, like nicer just going for 10 years ago today, a Zynga reflection. Yeah. That would have been a, a, a little bit better. I, I thought that was it was a really, really just gripping article. I really enjoyed it. Um, you don't get kind of retrospective type articles like that. The funny thing about Zynga is like, Everyone I ever talked to that worked there, because I was at D-Chalk around that same time, right? And there was, uh, people were moving in between the companies. People would usually leave D-Chalk and go to Zynga. Um, but everyone I speak to, like, who worked there in that, that really rough, like, intense period was like, oh, man, I would never do that again. It was brutal. The environment was toxic. Um, it, it, was, it was a grind, but I would not trade that experience for anything. Right, like it was really formative. It was really helpful for my career. I met people that I'm still working with today, or still in touch with today. Um, but I would never do that again. And like, so I feel like you can't be totally negative about those kinds of experiences. Like they they can be like character building, I guess. Um, but yeah, when you put people in that kind of a pressure cooker, sometimes you get diamonds, and sometimes uh, they implode or they just get traumatized. Um, and some people can handle that better than others, and, and people need to kind of be personally aware. But, yeah, it's funny because every single person I've spoken to has just – can kind of look back on that period and see that it did benefit them in some ways, but they would just never want to experience that again. I mean, I, I, was, co I was covering the company at the time, so um, – and, and I, I, I could see the writing on the wall that things were not looking good after the IPO, and um, – and, and fundamentally, it was it was Pincus and Facebook, and then the transition to mobile. I mean, those are the three big things that just kind of blew this company up in a big way, right? Pincus basically managed this thing in the ground by basically creating the same game over and over again, expecting different results, right? Um, and the transition to mobile was a disaster because all these like rock stars that made so much money on Facebook Canvas became absolutely irrelevant mm. because yeah. <laughs> developing developing for. Uh, um, Oh my God! What is it called? Flash had nothing to do with developing for mobile, and so their 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 skill sets were useless, right? And so 
building up mo new teams to go after mobile was really, really challenging because these rock stars were like, you know, fuck off type thing, I've been, I was told. Um, and then, uh, and that created this entire political chance. And, and if I remember correctly, that's part of the reason that Shepard left. It's like managing it was impossible. I'm not 100% sure about why Shepard left so quickly. I mean, I know he didn't last long. Um, but the big thing was that Facebook did did a, did an Apple, right? They totally rat-fucked the whole industry, yeah, right? right? I mean, it was crazy. Like, they overnight, they basically canceled every single, yeah. like, organic growth vector by pulling them off the main feed, yeah, right? Yeah. So, again, I've ranted about this before, but it was like, it was a sea change, change, right? It was like the means of which of distribution was completely removed, just like IDFA, right? In, over, almost overnight. And, and, and Zynga had, like, some amazing relationship with Facebook that that kept it going longer but it was only a matter of time because it became less strategic but anyway the me the, the the companies that built Facebook's platform were basically completely destroyed yeah. over in, in, in a six-month period uh, because of, of shift of strategy and that's why controlling your own platforms is such a critical part or having some control I suppose yeah well that's what happened um, to Dchalk I mean we were all in on flash. Right. And it's like Facebook would never pull the plug. Come on. Like this is so good for their own on platform engagement until it wasn't. Right. And then the problem with Dchalk was Trip's vision was that mobile gaming would be dominated by Android. And so we kind of we did a little bit too late. Right. Just just late enough to not be able to have a soft landing started pivoting into Android games development, which, as we all know, is not the bulk of the revenue for mobile gaming. It's I mean, the vast majority comes from iOS. I, I have yeah. to uh, defend so, my, my friends in, in game client engineering because having gone through the transition, you can be a rock star Flash programmer and become a rock star Unity programmer, or vice versa. I know plenty of people who made that transition, and, and just like with any engine or you know core technology transition, it takes a learning period and an adjustment period. But like, I've I having gone through that and the pain of trying to hire flash engineers and then transitioning to mobile, I I've come to the conclusion that a good engineer who loves to learn and loves to solve problems is a good engineer. And they'll work on any, uh, any client engine or any new technology. No, I, sorry. I'm not, I'm not, uh, sorry. I'm not debating yeah. the, that type of like that. The learning curve was, was significant, but that, that's definitely doable. What I was trying to suggest and what I was, being told at the time was that the engineers that sh that were basically in charge of, well, were responsible for the success of Zynga on the way up um, doing Flash were just not willing right culturally to move and do different things because that was their bread and butter they were rock stars right. for that so they right? they suffered like, the Kodak problem right they didn't want to get off the burning platform so that's 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 a, a yeah yeah I wouldn't that would be very annoying. It was, it was super political, like fiefdoms, all kinds of nonsense. But I'm not going to go into it. I could talk about this for 45 yeah. minutes. I just don't want to. It's not worth it. All right, moving on. Oh, oh, is it my turn? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's close Wait, it out with how, this. How much? All right. Let's finish this. All right. So the, the, the PS5, what's ironic is the only really news that mattered coming out of like Gamescom was the PS5 price hike in Europe. <laughs> Other than that, I, I, there wasn't much going on. And I... And that show is always a little bit like more subdued generally than than E3, even though we didn't have E3. But uh, there wasn't much coming out of this. But this price hike kind of got everyone hot and bothered in Europe, uh, generally speaking. And 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 the response was a little bit weird. Like there was some like conspiracy type things. And then 
almost immediately, and this is the big point, is that Microsoft comes out with a press release saying, we are not raising prices. You know, PS5 is raising like $50 in the UK or $30 in EU or whatever. Um, and they're basically blaming um, uh, supply chain and, 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 and but, but, but it's primarily currency fluctuations and, and, uh, and lower currency values in, in the Euro. Um, so articles are written and everyone's kind of like all pissed off at Sony for raising prices. But the reality of it is the reason, the reason that Nintendo and Microsoft are not reducing prices is their own, right? First of all, Nintendo has had this device out for like, what, six years now, five years now? The thing is worth, is super cheap to make. So they don't, they don't have to worry about the cost of goods and, and, the, and the changing in pricing dynamics of, of the currencies because they're still making money on the platform. So Nintendo's okay in that sense. Um, and then Microsoft, and, and this is the one point I want to make, is that Microsoft has the flexibility of, of eating any type of additional cost because they're such a big conglomerate, right? This is one of the benefits of being a huge company. It's like these losses on hardware, again, are mice nuts, right? So it doesn't really matter to them. But also, they're American companies, so they actually do benefit from the strength of the dollar, generally speaking, from, from an economic perspective. Um, so uh, what was my point on this? Um, oh, anyway, so yeah, Microsoft's getting advantage from being a U.S. company. That's why they, they don't have to increase prices the way uh, by, uh, PlayStation does. And personally, I don't think this is a big deal for the, in, for, for the industry or for adoption. I think Europe is, is still going to be a predominantly Sony platform. And, and in, the, in the U.S., there may have been some strategic thinking in terms of not raising price here um, because of how competitive it is with Microsoft. But again, ultimately, because the dollar is so strong that like, you know, $400 for a console here is worth a lot of, a lot more money in, in, in Japan. So they don't need to increase price here. So it's more, it's definitely an economic thing that, that pricing wasn't in, increased in the U.S. Um, I don't know. That's all I got to say. I just wanted to clarify that because I think it's been really poorly covered, generally speaking. Um, and so any economic economists out there, they're going to correct me, you know, send me a note. I want to I want to end um, on uh, w- one more uh, uh, admission of being wrong or having the wrong take. Since we're doing that, I'm going to concentrate it all in one episode here, and it'll never happen again. A couple weeks ago, we talked about Phase Clan went public via SPAC. They uh, they snuck out right as the door was closing. I was dismissive of that. I uh, didn't think that uh, that that was going to fare well, but it has. So. Uh, no. Phase Clan debuted at nine dollars or just under ten bucks. It's now at eighteen. Uh, market cap of one point three billion. Uh, so I was talking to some investors yesterday that have a focus on esports and uh, they have a big stake in a, in a competing team. And so, just out of curiosity, I checked the price and I was surprised. So, congrats to the Phase Clan on a very successful debut. Uh, good luck to you in the future. Well, Apparently, we'll it has do. kind of turned into something of like a meme stock. I mean, the the the, the volumes are super mm. low, so we'll see. Um, but nonetheless, I was wrong about that. They had a successful debut, and <laughs> they have. There's a clan that's worth 1.3 billion dollars. So how about that? You're, you're you're not wrong yet, dude. This could only end more poorly. So we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll skills, see. We'll, we'll, skills we'll, went we'll up re- to 40 six months before it shot down to garbage. So you know, we'll see. skills. And just in terms of gaming spacs, right? Like, yeah, first yeah. first couple quarters is just the beginning. They're mm-hmm. they're on the stock Fair market enough, yeah. forever. 
All right. All right, Adam. Sorry to see you go. Hopefully, you'll come back and visit, and uh, we'll interview you and talk to you about all things Destiny or Bungie, I guess. Um, anyway, later, yeah, dude. Definitely will appreciate be missed. It. Thanks. All right. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Go. Bye, everyone. Bye. All right, but. Thank you for listening to the whole episode. If you like this podcast, please do leave a comment and share the episode. If you want to access the Deconstructor of Fun community with hundreds of senior games folk, go to our website and apply to the Slack group. And if you want to get notified of all the new content we have coming out every week, do subscribe to the weekly Deconstructor of Fun newsletter. Finally, do remember, we love you guys and we appreciate you guys. Catch you next time.